Hey everyone, I'm Thanos Davelis, and welcome back to The Greek Current, a podcast by the Hellenic American Leadership Council and Kathy Merini, where we highlight the top stories of the day every afternoon with analysis from guest experts, policymakers, journalists, and health staff. As Turkey increasingly drifts from the West, we've seen Turkey and Russia move closer together. In a recently published report for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a team of experts look at Russia-Turkey relations under Presidents Putin and Erdogan, where they document how the Erdogan and Putin regimes have managed to compartmentalize their relationship, mixing competition with substantial cooperation across a range of areas. The authors also offer a nuanced set of policy recommendations for the United States and its transatlantic allies, highlighting how they should react to Turkey's drift from the West under Erdogan. Ikon Erdemir and John Hardy, two of the authors of this report, join The Greek Current to break down their work, which is titled Collusion or Collision, Turkey-Russia Relations under Erdogan and Putin. Dr. Aykan Erdemir is the Senior Director of the Turkey Program at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a former Turkish lawmaker. John Hardy is the Research Manager at FDD, and his own research focuses on Russian foreign and security policy, U.S. policy toward Russia, and transatlantic relations. Aykan, John, welcome on to The Greek Current. It's great to have you both on our program. It's great to join you. Thank you. Yes, same here. Thanks. Aykan, why did you, you know, your colleagues John and Sinan and the Foundation for Defense of Democracies feel the need to issue a Turkey-Russia report? Turkey-Russia remains one of the the key debates in Washington. There is still among some analysts and policymakers the Cold War sense that Turkey remains a bulwark, not just against Russia, but also against Iran in the Middle East. So this Cold War thinking sees Erdogan's Turkey still as a key ally and partner in the region. But then at the same time, over the last decade, we have seen the, the growing trend that sees Turkey more as part of the problem, especially when it comes to Russia. So not only that Turkey no longer plays that deterrent role against Russia and Iran for that matter, but also Turkey now coordinates closely with Putin's Russia and plays a spoiler role within NATO. Hence, in our report, we wanted to lay out the complex trajectory of the relationship between Moscow and Ankara under Putin and Erdogan, and remind our multiple audiences the ways in which Putin and Erdogan have managed to join forces despite remaining at odds in various features of action. John, Putin and Erdogan have repeatedly demonstrated their ability to navigate crises and geopolitical tensions in order to reach understandings, often at the West's expense. How have the two leaders managed to balance competition with cooperation? Yeah, so, you know, historically, especially starting in the the late Cold War era, economic cooperation, particularly on energy, has been a key driver of relations, as well as a buffer against geopolitical tensions. Turkey is dependent on Russia gas. Turkey is an important gas market for Russia. Uh, More recently, they inaugurated you know, the Turkstream pipeline in 2020, they have the $20 billion nuclear power plant project that's ongoing. Russia is a top provider for tourists to Turkey, as well as you know, a key market for Turkish agricultural products and construction contracts. So you have economics. Secondly, you know, there's really shared antipathy toward the West. For Erdogan, Russia facilitates independence from the West. And then for Putin, Turkey's willingness to break with Washington and other NATO allies, you know, really fits well with Moscow's campaign to erode U.S. influence and undermine the transatlantic alliance. The S-400 is a great example of that. And then Putin and Erdogan really have a, a good working relationship. They're not easy negotiating partners, but at least for Putin, I think he kind of views Erdogan as someone he can at least negotiate with, whereas that's not really always true with other Western leaders. 
And then finally, I think both Russia and Turkey really recognize that although they compete across various theaters, they can usually get more of what they want by working together than they can otherwise. That doesn't mean that competition and kind of stepping on each other's toes doesn't still happen. It definitely does. But, you know, across several key theaters, Syria, Libya, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey and Russia have really reached negotiated outcomes that advances their interests. John, you brought up energy. And in your report, you all write that, you know, energy has provided the basis for Turkish-Russian rapprochement since the end of the Cold War. Just how significant is energy when we look at the direction their relations have taken? Icon, can you give us, you know, the Turkish side of the story and then John, the Russian side in more detail? So ultimately, Turkey imports, you know, over 95% of its hydrocarbons, both oil and natural gas. And, you know, even before Erdogan's rise to power, Turkey began depending in greater amounts on Russian gas. And Erdogan's turn to Russia for nuclear power compounded the problem. And more recently, Turkey's building of the Turk Stream to supplement the Blue Stream pipeline under the Black Sea increased Turkey's dependence on Russian gas. So when you put all of these together, we see Turkey's foreign and security policy being also shaped to a large extent by its dependence on Russian energy. And this is not just about, you know, Moscow's ability to turn on and off the taps, but it's also an economic issue. That is, given these deals are behind closed doors with zero transparency, this also gives both Putin and Erdogan a great opportunity to cut deals and also for spoils, not only to themselves, but also to their inner circle of clients. So energy is really the linchpin of this relationship, but it has spilled over to other domains and now has a greater impact on the bilateral relationship. I think that was great. And I agree. The only thing I would add is that, you know, for Putin, at least transit through Turkey to Europe is not just, you know, financially important, but it's a key geopolitical goal as well. You know, bypassing Ukraine is really a long-standing goal. And, uh, you know, Blue Stream, Turk Stream, uh, they help with that. In 2017, Turkey purchased the Russian S-400, and since acquiring this missile defense system, there's been speculation as to whether Turkey will purchase additional Russian military hardware. How do you see their defense relationship evolving? You know, Akan, can you give us the Turkish angle and, John, the Russian angle on this? Now, Turkey has always had a Eurasianist faction, a pro-Russia faction in its military and among its intelligentsia. But what really pushed Turkey towards Russia was Turkey's failed coup attempt and then Putin leveraging a vulnerable Erdogan to push a big-ticket Russian military hardware into Turkey. And that was the first batch of the S-400 purchase. But now as we speak, there are rumors about a potential second batch being imported by Turkey. And at the same time, Turkish officials have made a reference to either purchasing Russian jets or joining forces with Russia for technology to transfer into Turkey's indigenous fighter jet program. And all of this sets a dangerous trajectory because despite U.S. sanctions, despite Katsa sanctions for Turkey's purchase of the S-400, it shows that Erdogan is willing to double down on Turkey's defense cooperation with Russia, potentially triggering further sanctions as pledged by the Biden administration. For Russia, financially, you know, I wouldn't discount that. You know, Russia's defense industry really benefits from these major contracts. They're able to cross-subsidize, you know, other important programs. 
And then of course there's the geopolitical angle. You know, when a NATO ally like Turkey buys an S-400, you know, strategic air defense system, that really throws a wrench in the works of NATO. It undermines, you know, NATO interoperability, you know, the ways they can work together. And then at a political level, it really creates a lot of distance and tension within the alliance. I want to take us to the domestic side of things. You know, to what degree does Turkey and Russia's alignment also reflect domestic factors in both countries? And we can start with Icon and move to John. Now, this is a very ironic development because Turkey has always had a Eurasianist faction, but this faction used to be at odds with Erdogan. Only after Turkey's abortive coup, we see really a coming together of the Eurasianists and the Erdogan factions. And this is basically pushed Turkey full force toward Russia. Now, on the Eurasianist side, the logic has always been that Russia offers a better partner given it has no demands about human rights and freedoms, the rule of law, and minority rights. So this was more a secular nationalist faction seeing Russia as a more convenient partner for domestic reasons. On Erdogan's part, Putin was not only a good kleptocratic partner to Turkey's own kleptocratic regime, but at the same time, although Erdogan comes from an Islamist background, he realized he shared the same strong anti-Western sentiment with Putin. So just like Turkey's relationship with Iran, the regimes might come from different places, but when it comes to anti-Westernism, anti-Americanism, anti-NATO positions, they realize that they have so much common ground to build a working relationship together. And ultimately, this marriage of convenience between Eurasianists and Turkey's Islamists and ultranationalists also serve as a big block that can keep Turkey's pro-Western center-left to center-right spectrum outside of political power. So this came to be now, I think, Turkey's defining division. Hence, I would argue that Turkish-Russian relations should really be interpreted also through the lens of Turkish domestic politics. John, what about the way that this plays out domestically in Russia? So it's really mixed. I mean, on the one hand, Turkish involvement, you know, interference in uh, Russian Muslim majority regions was, you know, a big problem for a long time. And then more recently, Moscow really doesn't appreciate Turkey's policy toward Crimea, which, you know, Russia, of course, considers part of its territory. On the other hand, you know, the dynamics that Icon mentioned, you know, absolutely obtain. With Erdogan, Putin doesn't face criticism on democracy or human rights. So, you know, there is that authoritarian affinity, I guess you could say. And then, you know, Putin, like Icon mentioned, has been able to capitalize on domestic factors in Turkey and, you know, Turkish strains with the West over, you know, democracy, human rights, especially after the coup attempt. Putin was really quick to pounce on that, you know, calling Erdogan quickly, offering support, etc. Icon and John, you highlight in your piece how the United States and its transatlantic partners need to take action to clarify their strategy toward a Turkey that's increasingly drifting away from the West. What steps should you know, Washington and its partners in Europe, for example, be taking? So in our report, uh, we kind of lay out four prongs based on the reality as we see it, that Erdogan's rapprochement with Russia, a fundamental direction and shift in Turkish foreign policy. You know, Ankara is not going to soon reprise its role as a staunch NATO ally. So we need to take steps to deal with that. So our first prong is sort of where we can, making the most of the situation, cooperating to the extent we can, whether it's countering Russia in the Black Sea, promoting alternatives to Russian energy, 
At the same time, in our report, we really emphasize that the Western strategy should employ a combination of carrots and sticks to discourage Turkey from further aligning with Russia you know, and further undermining NATO. So that's where things like Katza sanctions come in for further Turkish purchases of Russian arms, you know, things like global Magnitsky sanctions, possible incentives if we get to use them, which is, is doubtful, could include like reprising U.S.-Turkey military to military ties if Ankara unwinds its commitment to the S-400, which again, we don't see as particularly likely. Now, on my end, I would argue that the transatlantic alliance should also prepare for the day after. Erdogan is not here to stay forever. He is heading for a very challenging 2023 presidential and parliamentary elections. And when we take a look at history, Russia and Turkey, and before that, the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, remained rivals. So Putin-Erdogan's relationship is not a sustainable relationship. So what can Washington and Brussels do to prepare for the day after? First of all, it's important to invest in Turkey's democratic inclusive institutions, as well as the Western institutions that Turkey has been a member of. You know, these include the Council of Europe and NATO, but at the same time, it also includes sustaining Turkey's European Union membership process, which has been an important anchor. Besides that, it is also important for Washington to cooperate with European partners to push back against Russia's propaganda efforts in Turkey. This means that there could be, just like you know, Radio Free Europe or Radio Free Asia, there could be a dedicated Turkey program that helps push against Russian propaganda and prepare Turkey for this democratic transition. And overall, I think U.S. commitment to the Middle East and to the Eastern Mediterranean will also send an important signal to Turkey's electorate that they are not alone. The United States and NATO allies are not withdrawing from the regions, and they are willing to invest in Turkey's economy, democracy, and institutions. This will definitely boost Turkey's pro-democracy constituents and help Turkey's pivoting away from Russia and back toward NATO and its transatlantic values. Icon, John, thank you both for joining us on The Greek Currents. Great speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Great to be with you. In other news, the European Central Bank decided on Thursday not to abruptly pull back pandemic support for the economy as the new Omicron variant stirs uncertainty about the recovery, despite inflation hitting record highs and the U.S. speeding up its stimulus exit. The bank confirmed that it will phase out its 1.85 trillion euro pandemic bond purchase stimulus on schedule next year, but will maintain some of the effect by moving part of the purchases to another support program. The ECB also decided to extend support for Greek bonds. It said that in the event of renewed market fragmentation related to the pandemic, PEPP reinvestments can be adjusted flexibly across time, asset classes, and jurisdictions at any time. This could include purchasing Greek bonds. Finally, Turkey's central bank again cut a key interest rate Thursday despite soaring consumer prices that are making it difficult for people to buy food and other basic goods, sending the country's currency to record lows against the U.S. dollar. The bank's monetary policy committee said it is cutting the rate from 15% to 14%, though inflation is running at 21%. Shortly after this decision by Turkey's central bank, President Erdogan announced a 50% rise in the country's minimum wage. Erdogan, whose ruling party has suffered an erosion of support in the polls amid a sharp slide in the lira and rising living costs, hailed the increase as a historic pay boost for the country's workers, about 40% of whom earn the minimum wage. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.